Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 308. Today's big Bible question is, what is the Bible's best evangelism strategy? And we're also going to begin talking about the five spookiest stories in the Bible. So happy Friday, friends. I suspect there's probably never been a podcast like this one in the history of the world, and probably for good reason. A podcast that discusses spooky things in the Bible in the same breath as talking about evangelism and discipleship. Maybe there's a reason there's never been a podcast like that before, but we are going to forge ahead and give it a shot. Bear with me, if you will. As I mentioned yesterday, we're going to cover a few spooky Bible stories over the next couple of days, but don't fear. These will be real Bible stories with real and important messages for us, and we're still going to do our normal Bible readings and discuss our normal Bible questions. We'll just be a little bit shorter on those Bible questions. Our Bible reading for the day includes 2 Kings 11-12, through 12, Psalm 119, 121-144, through 144, Hosea chapter 3 and 4, and 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, our big Bible question of the day is from our Timothy passage. Evangelism is a very churchy kind of word that comes from a Greek word that basically means good news. When we are talking about evangelism, we are very simply talking about sharing the good news about Jesus. And in doing so, we're fulfilling the great commission of Jesus that he gave to his disciples before ascending into heaven. In other words, that we go and teach all the people the teachings about Jesus, making disciples of his and baptizing people. Now, Paul is going to give us the strategy for doing that in today's reading. And I need to tell you that that strategy for evangelizing and discipleship and growing the church is not to build big, expensive church buildings. It's not to put your church service on television or to have amazing programs or the best and most impressive Sunday services. No, it's none of those things, and in fact, it's so simple, you might just miss it if you aren't careful. So, listen carefully as we read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and descended from David according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Avoid irreverent and empty speech since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness and their teaching will spread like gangrene. 
Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they are ruining the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. Amen. So here is that amazing discipleship strategy again. If you missed it, it's in verses 1 and 2. You therefore, my son, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's really, really simple, right? In the grace of God, take the teachings of the Word of God and teach those to faithful men who will then do likewise. Now, it is with such a strategy that the good news of Jesus reached all over the world from a tiny little country. And this, as it turns out, is the same thing that Jesus did, the same way of evangelism that Jesus employed. David Mathis tells us more and says, Does disciple all nations not call to mind how Jesus himself discipled his men? They were, after all, his disciples. And when they heard him say, Disciple all nations, would they not think this discipling, this evangelism, is similar to the very thing he did with them? Investing prolonged, real life, day in and day out, intentional time with younger believers in order to personally grow them to maturity as well as model for them how to disciple others in the same way. This sounds like what Paul is getting at in 2 Timothy 2.2 when he instructs his disciple Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, my disciple, disciple others to disciple others. Four spiritual generations, says Mathis, get explicit mention here. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and then the others also that they are teaching, with the implication that Further generations are to follow those. Discipling seen in this light means not merely the pursuit of our own spiritual maturity, but getting outside ourselves for personal connection and substantial intentional investment of time in a few others, the kind of investment for which there must be going to accomplish among the nations. Jesus spent over three years with his twelve disciples. He called them to be discipled at the outset of his ministry in Matthew 4.19, and he gave them the lion's share of his life until his departure in Matthew 28. He invested his life in his men. It is eye-opening to track in the Gospels how much Jesus gave of himself to his disciples. While the crowds pursued him, he pursued his disciples. He was willing to bless the masses, but he invested the most in the few. So that's something important to 
think about the best strategy for reaching the world with the gospel is still to take the message and teachings of the word of God, invest those messages and teachings into faithful men who will turn around and do the same thing with others and with others and with others and with others and so on and so forth. Now, let's talk about the five spookiest stories in the Bible. And uh, then we will finish up with the rest of our Bible readings for the day. This is part one. We're going to do three spooky Bible stories today. Tomorrow, we are going to do two more and still do our normal Bible reading. So number five, spookiest story in the Bible. We just recently read it in the Bible reading podcast, the terrifying story of King Belshazzar and the disembodied hand. How do I know that this is one of the scariest stories in the Bible? Well, because the king might just have wet his pants, or worse, when he saw the disembodied hand writing on the wall of his throne room. So here's the story. This is Daniel chapter 5, 1 through 9. King Belshazzar had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Mm so that the king and his nobles and wives and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts terrified him so that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. And then the king shouts out to his diviners and mediums and Chaldeans and wise men and says, "'Can you tell me what this says?' But they could not translate what it meant. So that made King Belshazzar even more terrified, and his face became even more pale. So as we've talked about before, we aren't 100% sure that the king wet himself there, or worse, but seeing the hand of God writing on the wall obviously terrified him inside and out. His face went pale, his knees knocked, and he became just utterly utterly terrified. Even more spooky, the story just gets worse from there. Belshazzar, a man of great pride who did not love God or obey his commandments but followed other gods, was told by Daniel, the wise man, that the king had been judged by God and his kingdom would be taken away. And that prophecy was fulfilled less than 24 hours after the disembodied hand wrote on the wall of the king's room. Spookiest story number four, Legion, the super strong demonized man. What if I told you there was a man in the Bible who could not be captured by the police, by the military, or any people, that he was so supernaturally strong that any time people did try to capture him and tie him up with chains or ropes, he would just break them? What if I told you that this man was so immune to fear himself and so terrifying that he lived in a graveyard and cried out constantly in a horrifying voice. Well, that sounds 
terrible and unsettling, right? But what if I told you that this man met somebody even more powerful than he was? Well, let's read it in Mark chapter 5, run 1 through 15. The disciples came to the other side of the sea in the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as they got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you for for God, don't torment me. For he had told him, come out of the the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it to the town in the countryside and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So, this man was possessed by a whole group of demons, apparently like a lot, wasn't living in the tombs, breaking chains, cutting himself, and crying out constantly because he was some sort of super creepy and super evil villain, but because he was demonized and oppressed. And he met somebody more powerful than he and more powerful than all of the demons that were oppressing him. Jesus, the Son of God, who set him completely and utterly free. So this spooky story has a great ending. And not only that, Jesus can set you free also from anything that is oppressing you. Spookiest story in the Bible, number three, the ghost walking on the water. So did you know that the Bible has more than one ghost story? Well, let me set the stage for you. Matthew, John, Peter, James, and the other disciples of Jesus are in a boat at night on the somewhat treacherous Sea of Galilee. To make matters worse, Jesus isn't with them because he wanted to spend some time praying on the mountainside way back miles away on the land. So, These men are alone, miles, literally, from shore, and a storm has all of a sudden fired up. The time is well after midnight, it's pitch black, and the disciples are in a very small boat, one that is powered by oars. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you found yourself several miles offshore in a small boat after midnight and a sudden storm has come up? Well... That's terrifying. My dad used to own a powerful motorboat, which would be a much better craft to have than this one that the disciples had. It had a 150 horsepower motor, but one day we were on the bay uh, in the middle of the day and a storm started up and it was a somewhat unexpected storm and the boat was being tossed back and forth because it wasn't a yacht, it was more of a boat. 
We could see land, and it was daylight, and yet, I gotta tell you, it, it was a pretty scary experience to be, I don't know, half a mile offshore in the middle of a storm and being rocked back and forth. I can only imagine how unsettling it would be for the disciples to be miles offshore, no radio, no life vests, no place to hide, after midnight in the middle of the storm, and to make matters worse, they look up while they're straining at the oars and thinking they're about to die? And what do you think they see? A ghostly figure walking across the water, like floating on top of the water. Now, terrified, they shout out, just like you and I would, it's a ghost! And then, whatever it is, looks at them, and starts heading towards the boat and starts talking to them. Oh my gosh, how terrifying. Well, let's read the story. This is Matthew 14, verse 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came walking towards them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. When they dis- the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Well, maybe the fact that the ghost, in quotes, ended up being Jesus makes the story a little less spooky, but do spare a thought for those poor disciples. I'm sure they were scared out of their minds until they realized it was Jesus. Well, what was the key to that story? They saw him, they knew him, they realized it was him, they trusted in him, and of course, he protected them. Join us again tomorrow for our last two spooky stories where we will see somebody actually come back from the dead and appear to over 500 people. How spooky is that? Well, stay tuned and we'll find out. But for now, we continue reading Second Kings chapter 11, verse 1. When Athaliah, Ahaziah's mother, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs. Jehosheba, who was King Jehoram's daughter and Ahaziah's sister, secretly rescued Joash, son of Ahaziah, from among the king's sons who were being killed and put him and the one who nursed him in a bedroom. So he was hidden from Athaliah and was not killed. Joash was in hiding with her in the Lord's temple six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent for the commanders of hundreds, the Karaites, and the guards. He had them come to him in the Lord's temple, where he made a covenant with them and put them under oath. He showed them the king's son and commanded them, This is what you are to do. A third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath are to provide protection for the king's palace. A third of you are to be at the foundation gate, and a third at the gate behind the guards. 
You are to take turns providing protection for the palace. Your two divisions that go off duty on the Sabbath are to provide the king protection at the Lord's temple. Completely surround the king with weapons in hand. Anyone who approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king in all his daily tasks. So the commanders of the hundreds did everything the priest Jehoiada commanded. They each brought their men, those coming on duty on the Sabbath and those going off duty, and came to the priest Jehoiada. The priest gave to the commanders of hundreds King David's spears and shields that were in the Lord's temple. Then the guards stood with their weapons in hand, surrounding the king from the right side of the temple to the left side, by the altar and by the temple. Jehoiada brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, and made him king. They anointed him and clapped their hands and cried, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise from the guard and the crowd, she went out to the people of the Lord's temple. She looked, and there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom. The commanders and the trumpeters were by the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Athaliah tore her clothes and screamed, Treason! Treason! Then the priest Jehoiada ordered the commanders of hundreds in charge of the army Take her out between the ranks and put to death by the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest had said she is not to be put to death in the Lord's temple. So they arrested her and she went through the horse entrance to the king's palace where she was put to death. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people that they would be the Lord's people and another covenant between the king and the people. So all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed its altars and images to pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, at the altars. Then Jehoiada the priest appointed guards for the Lord's temple. He took the commanders of hundreds, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king from the Lord's temple. They entered the king's palace by way of the guard's gate. Then Joash sat on the throne of the kings. All the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had put Athaliah to death by the sword in the king's palace. Joash was seven years old when he became king. Chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned forty years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibla. She was from Beersheba. Throughout the time the priest Jehoiada instructed him, Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight. Yet the high places were not taken away. The people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. Then Joash said to the priests, All the dedicated silver brought to the Lord's temple, census silver, silver from vows, and all silver voluntarily given for the Lord's temple. Each priest is to take it from his assessor and repair whatever damage is found in the temple. But by the 23rd year of the reign of King Joash, the priests had not repaired the damage to the temple. So King Joash called the priest Jehoiada and the other priests and asked, Why haven't you repaired the temple damage? Since you haven't, don't take any silver from your assessors. Instead, hand it over for the repair of the temple. So the priests agreed that they would receive no silver from the people and would not be the ones to repair the temple's damage. Then the priest Jehoiada took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the Lord's temple. The priests who guarded the threshold put into the chest all the silver that was brought to the Lord's temple. Whenever they saw there was a large amount of silver in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest would go bag up and tally the silver found in the Lord's temple. Then they would have it give the weighed silver to those doing the work, those who oversaw the Lord's temple. They, in turn, would pay it out to those working on the Lord's temple, the carpenters, the builders, the masons, and the stonecutters, and would use it to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the damage to the Lord's temple and for all the expenses for temple repairs. 
However, no silver bowls, wick trimmers, sprinkling basins, trumpets, or any articles of gold or silver were made for the Lord's temple from the contributions brought to the Lord's temple. Instead, it was given to those doing the work, and they repaired the Lord's temple with it. No accounting was required from the men who received the silver to pay those doing the work, since they worked with integrity. The silver from the guilt offering and the sin offering was not brought to the Lord's temple, since it belonged to the priests. At that time, King Hazael of Aram marched up and fought against Gath and captured it. Then he planned to attack Jerusalem, so King Joash of Judah took all the items consecrated by himself and by his ancestors, Judah's kings Jehoshaphat, Jehoiram, Ahaziah, as well as all the gold found in the treasuries of the Lord's temple in the king's palace, and he sent them to King Hazael of Aram. Then Hazael withdrew from Jerusalem. The rest of the events of Joash's reign, along with all his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Joash's servants conspired against him and attacked him at Beth Milo on the road that goes down to Selah. It was his servants, Jotzebed, son of Shimeath, and Jehozabed, son of Shomer, who attacked him. He died and they buried him with his ancestors in the city of David, and his son Amaziah became king in his place. Psalm 119, 121-144 I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Guarantee your servants' well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes grow weary looking for your salvation and for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant based on your faithful love. Teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding so that I may know your decrees. It is time for the Lord to act, for they violated your instruction. Since I love your commands more than gold, even the purest gold, I carefully follow all your precepts and hate every false way. Your decrees are wondrous, therefore I obey them. The revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperienced. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commands. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your practice toward those who love your name. Make my steps steady through your promise. Don't let any sin dominate me. Redeem me from human oppression and I will keep your precepts. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes pour out streams of tears because people do not follow your instruction. You are righteous, Lord and your judgments are just. The decrees you issue are righteous and altogether trustworthy. My anger overwhelms me because my foes forget your words. Your word is completely pure and your servant loves it. I am insignificant and despised, but I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your instruction is true. Trouble and distress have overtaken me, but your commands are my delight. Your decrees are righteous forever. Give me understanding and I will live. Hosea chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. I said to her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man and I will act the same towards you. For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek their Lord, their God, and David, their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Amen. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. 
There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky. Even the fish of the sea disappear, but let no one dispute, let no one argue. For my case is against you, priests. You will stumble by day. The prophet will also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from serving as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your sons. The more they multiply, the more they sinned against me. I will change their honor into disgrace. They feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for their iniquity. The same judgment will happen to both people and priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not be satisfied. They will be promiscuous, but not multiply, for they have abandoned their devotion to the Lord. Promiscuity, wine, and new wine take away one's understanding. My people consult their wooden idols, and their divining rods inform them, for a spirit of promiscuity leads them astray. They act promiscuously to in disobedience to their God, They sacrifice on the mountaintops, and they burn offerings on the hills and under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is pleasant. And so your daughters act promiscuously, and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they act promiscuously, or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go off with prostitutes and make sacrifices with cult prostitutes. People without discernment are doomed. Israel If you act promiscuously, don't let Judah become guilty. Do not go to Gilgal or make a pilgrimage to Beth Avin, and do not swear an oath. As the Lord lives, for Israel is as obstinate as a stubborn cow. Can the Lord now shepherd them like a lamb in an open meadow? Ephraim is attached to idols. Leave him alone. When their drinking is over, they turn to promiscuity. Israel's leaders fervently love disgrace. A wind with its wings will carry them off and they will be ashamed of their sacrifices. Lord, have mercy. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he call you to himself and may you and I turn to him wholeheartedly. Good day to you and Godspeed.